You see, the, 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 the thing is that most of us feel we can get by with it. Well, now, that is a questionable thesis. Now, now, oh, I'm sorry, I know it's Saturday, and there are birds, and there are flowers, and there are bees, and there are... Hey, are the birds and the flowers doing what they used to do, that, that uh, I used to hear about them doing when I was just... Uh, has anyone ever been told about those things through the medium of the birds, the bees, and the flowers? I mean, is this only in comic strips and in badly written books that are trying to imitate Booth Tarkington? I, I don't recall ever once, uh, not once, did my mother take me to one side and say, I want to tell you what those flowers are doing out there in the flower bed. Not once. Oh, yes, yes, Booth Tarkington, I can recall. Oh, but that, that again, is beside the point. Booth Tar this is Booth Tarkington weather, you know. I don't know whether or not you're familiar with Booth Tarkington houses, Booth Tarkington trees, Booth Tarkington people and the Booth Tarkington time of year, but this is it. it uh, it's just undeniable. I was riding in a cab this morning. Uh, oh, by the way, it was the best cab name I found yet. It was the Whoopi Cab. <laughs> I get in this little Studebaker, and, <laughs> and I was kind of sleepy. You know, the sun was... Have you ever noticed that when you're sleepy, the sun is aggressive as all get out? And the sun was, you know, acting like an idiot, squirting all over and sitting on my shoulder and doing all this stuff. And, and, I, and I, I hailed a cab, and this cab came up, and I, and I had a feeling that it was a little Rococo. I mean, it was kind of bouncy and springy. It came hopping up, and I get in the back, and as I get in, I read the little red letters on the side of the door, and it said, Whoopee! And I sat back in the seat there, and I'm mulling this over, and the first thing I said was, <laughs> hot diggity dog. And the guy said, what are you talking about? I said, whoopee. And he said, whoopee your eye. You ought to work for that slob. Well, of course, obviously, he was working for Mr. Whoopee. So I sat back there and looked at the sun while the sun was out there doing it, and I'm sitting in the back seat, and I'm just thinking about it all, and then I, I, I couldn't help but remember the time I'm, I'm I'm listening to that record. It was in the springtime just like this. The, the, you see, everywhere we go, this is the reason why the Japanese poets, of course, used the four seasons, because uh, the four seasons, all men know the four seasons. I mean, uh, whether you're rich, whether you're Bernard Baruch, or whether you're me, the sun does it to you, and the wind, and the rain and if it isn't the sun and the wind and the rain if you can if you can afford to have your whole world air conditioned at least there is a spring a summer a winter and a fall in the life of your own world i mean you you get older and so i'm i'm sitting back there and i i couldn't help but but remember that record that i used to listen to in the springtime always it was a springtime record it had to, it had something to do with some woman and she was talking and she was talking about Topsy and little Eva. That great big old dog was a snapping away there and she was riding on a cake of ice. I wonder if any of you remember that record. We will award the brass figligy with bronze oak leaf palms to any one of you who can remember that favorite old American record. And I'm sitting back there in the rear end of the cab where it's cool and dark I'm looking out, and the sun is just rocking down on Times Square. And there is a feeling, a true feeling. It's like the other day. I'm walking along 
6th Avenue. It was a very embarrassing moment. One of the very few moments in my life recently where I have had a chance to say the right thing at precisely the right moment. I'm walking along 6th Avenue. It was in the 40s. And you know those grates they have in the sidewalk that, that are the ventilating things for the, for the subway? Every, every 10 or 15 seconds you hear the roar of a subway go by. Well, uh, there's, a, there's a press of air that comes out of those grates, see? And I'm walking along there, and a woman who was wearing very fluffy nylon sort of bouffant skirts uh, stepped out on the sidewalk. She got out of a cab, and she was with a friend of hers. Very, very distinguished-looking types. Very distinguished-looking women with high cheekbones of the works, you see. And they got out of the cab, and they were walking along, and, and she stepped on this grate, and just as she did so, the old the old Sixth Avenue subway roared underneath. Rawr! And when it went past, the old Sixth Avenue subway was kicking up, you know, sending the air up through the through the grating. And this gal stood there, and all of a sudden her bouffant skirt was up around her shell pink ears. Woohoo, just like that, see? And I, I looked her right in the face and I says, New York is a summer festival. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. This is a terrible thing. I just couldn't help it, you know? And, 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 and it just went up there, and the old skirt was hanging there. Everything looked so festive about it. And it was a beautiful, festive moment. It had nothing nothing to do with anything other than the festivity of the moment. And and that old bouffant skirt hung there in the air. And she stood there, and her, her, her steel-rimmed glasses were glinting in the sun. It was a magnificent sight, you know? I just couldn't help it. It just came right to my mind. I looked her right in the eye. I said, New York is a summer festival. She didn't take to it kindly. I had, a, I had to make a quick left turn into a novelty shop there where they were playing a record of laughing. I stood there for about 15 minutes and looked at these plastic stains that you put on, on uh, you know, uh, to, to get myself back into the, you know, to get, get, get focus. Now, it's a problem of focusing, you see. It really is. I, I, think, I think life is a technique. I think, I think we learn how to live. I think I think it's a matter of keeping your concentration. You know, as a, an actor will tell you this, that uh, about nine-tenths of acting is concentration. In other words, keeping your mind on what you're doing. Really leveling right in on that part. See, if, if you're going to play, say you're going to play uh, Lionel Barrymore, and you're, you're sitting there, and Nurse Barker comes in. <laughs> Nurse Barker! All right, now you, you say it that way. All right, okay, so I guess you're going, Nurse Barker! Uh, bring me a cup of uh, nurse Parker. See, you, you step out of character when you when you do not keep your concentration. Well, I have uh, formulated the method theory of living, which uh, although I, I I could very well prove to be in the end, I suppose the Stanislavski of of life. Uh, I I am putting together a, a series of essays on how to maintain your concentration on living. On, on how to, uh, well, how to continue to play the part that you are, you see. Now, now let's take you, Jan. Uh, do you ever find yourself letting your character slip away from you? Of course. Nurse Barker! <laughs> I'm sitting there, you know, and I'm, I'm looking at the paper, and I'm sitting in the, in the rear end of this cab, and the sun is out there acting like a complete fool. Because uh, it's spring, of course. The sun, that is. And I'm sitting in the back of this cab, and I'm reading the paper. And way down there in the bottom of the lower left-hand corner, above the cemetery ads, there is a 
there is a little news note. I don't know why it, why it happened to pop up in the in the New York Times. It's just not the kind of New York Times item. In the middle of the page there, way down in the lower left-hand corner, it says, in Venice, the gondoliers are members of the Teamsters Union. Those who yield to the temptation to break into song on moonlit nights along the Grand Canal run afoul of the Musicians Union. Well, that's quite true. I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I'm sitting there mulling that over, and then suddenly, for no reason at all, do not ask me why it happened. I'm sitting there, and I, I see the interior of a castle. Is anybody interested in a cartoon I thought of? Okay, cartoon. All right, already? You're looking in the rectory. It's the rectory. It's, uh, it's, the, uh, it's the office at the church. And you see behind the desk there, you see the stained glass, beautiful stained glass. The sun is coming in, and it's, it's obviously a sort of a, a, a churchy kind of a twilight. And there you see the uh, head minister. He's kind of a pink-faced type with rimless glasses, and he's sitting there behind his desk, and he's talking to the young minister, the man who's his assistant. And obviously the young minister has given him a sermon to look over that he has written that he's going to deliver probably next Sunday. So the old man is looking at it, and he says, Well, uh, Hodgkins, uh, this isn't bad dogma-wise. It, uh, it uh, hangs together inspiration-wise, Hodgkins, but I think it's a little weak collection-wise. <laughs> Not commercial again. Not commercial again. There are no ways, no places, no instances whereby it all goeth, oh, indeed, oh, mankind, trod, tread, march, plod, ever upwards, ever onwards. And so I'm sitting there thinking about the, the Viennese gondoliers who are in the Teamsters Union. And, and I'm, I'm imagining a strike, the Viennese Teamsters Union, and I can see them picketing. But then, then that brings up another cartoon, because the world, if you look at it carefully enough, seems to be a cartoon of its own making. And so, before we go into the cartoon world, may I make a station break now? Is it too early? Well, uh, speaking of cartoons, this happens to be W-O-R-A-M and F-M, New York. You're going to have to wait a while before you get the punchline, but uh, it'll, it'll come to you in the end. And this is Gene Shepard. We'll be here until... Oh, two o'clock, something like that. But it really doesn't matter, you see. The time business is all purely a thing that's, that's, bugging, that's bugging man and nobody else. Does a squirrel know time? Does a rock know time? Does a turtle know time? Do the agencies know time? Now let's beat out a message via TomTom.
that's much better. Now, we might as well launch into it at this point. We might as well do it. Don, you have uh, Mid-America, Midstream music for me? Well, I think she can help you with that. That's it. Midstream American music. What better? What better than a momentary dabble, a momentary dipping into the vast vat of that singing... That's it. Humming, singing, playing moving ever over this long, vast continent of ours. Do you realize that you're standing on the, the very lip? You're hanging on the very, very, very outermost rim of the greatest dish and platter of mankind the world has ever seen, America. Stretching, stretching endlessly to that long western horizon, high, curving, down, up, High curving in again, and finally to the endless sea. Ah, America, we salute thee on this Saturday morning. Oh, by George. Miss Barker! Miss Barker! <laughs> it's all of a piece, all of a part. And now for our momentary glimpse into America 1960, the soaring 60s today, from the New York Times. This item, brought to you by the vast public relations, public service department of WOR, interested always in maintaining the deep, rich enjoyment of American life. We read now from the New York Times. I can't even read it. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't. I'm just one of the people. I'm just one of the little ones. I don't know how to face up. The way it is. All right. It's my job. I must go through with it. I am Ted Williams standing up at the dish, and Whitey Ford is leveling his low inshoot. All right, here it is. <clears throat> oh, here, here it is. This is an article taken from the New York Times. It's about the world, 1960. The plight, the state of man, 1960. As he plods up that long golden ladder, upward and upward, 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 toward the nirvana that he has, that he sees, that he feels, that he can almost perceive in his mind. I'm running out of moon music. I'm running out of... Oh. Quick, quick, quick. Have, has it ever occurred to you that 97% of the Hollywood actors would be out of work if they ran out of mood music? I read you the article. The headline reads, A shelter can be that extra room. <laughs> that extra playroom that you've been looking for. Or perhaps that extra crypt that you've wanted around the house. A shelter can be that extra room. And then in smaller type, it says embarrassment in building it is reduced by using it as a closet or shop. And then slightly larger type, and this is the one that scares me, interest on the rise. Interest on the rise. Smaller type again. Recent step up in Cold War is the spur. Business pouring in. And now I read to you. The year-round availability of family air raid shelters for such uses as storage closets 
photographic dark rooms, wine cellars, and playrooms, is said to be gradually overcoming the hesitancy of many homeowners to install them. Since the recent increase in international tension, more homeowners have been expressing an interest in such shelters. The number of New York area homeowners installing concrete basement shelters has risen sharply in the last few weeks. Among the uses some families are making of such shelters are a walk-in clothes closet, a practice room for young family musicians, a carpentry workshop, a food storage closet, and a record and a television room. A playroom. Oh, 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 by the way, under civil defense requirements for exterior underground shelters, the slab thickness of the roof must... In other words, they don't really work as bomb shelters, most of them. They're just kind of placebos. You know what is it, a placebo? Look up placebo. That's a good word. Placebo is your word for today. So come, my dear, come into the playroom. Come into the playroom. Zeus, too, is approaching. Oh, yes, and there is one company that is bringing out wallpaper, a special wallpaper for concrete walls, and it's especially designed for the interior of A-bomb shelters. And I, I was at a show the other day of, of a wallpaper manufacturer, and it was very delightful to see this stuff. Well, what would you think that the wallpaper used to, to decorate the interior of A-bomb shelters would be like? Well, you know, you know what it's like. You put it on all four walls, see, and there's nothing but a peaceful world. It comes in great big mosaic-like pictures, and they put it on, and you see little children playing along, along leafy bowers, and you see birds, and you see skies, and you see long rolling hills and lakes over there in the distance, and you see happy people getting out of happy automobiles, having happy picnics, and I think it's a kind of a beautiful idea for. Just don't, don't put it away yet, Don. No, don't, don't. No. I think we might need it because what is what is an American without his mood music? Just one more shot. That's it. That's an American piece of mood music. And so, and so as we look out over those paper hills and see the paper trees and the paper sky and the beautiful paper children. And see those lovely paper lakes and the paper rivers. We can only but be inspired. Be inspired to live deeper, richer, fuller lives deep in the heart of our A-bomb shelter. But it's a kind of a fun A-bomb shelter. If you'll notice over there at the left, it's got little portholes drawn. There's, a, there's an old jukebox over there in the corner. And, and <laughs> Fred's got a... <laughs> linoleum-covered bar with a set of plastic chairs. And so it was kind of fun while it lasted. I can, I can see an archaeologist of 4,000 years from now digging down through the rubble and the heap and the soil, and he finally breaks into a 20th-century crypt and finds a native there, perfectly preserved with his... 
It's me. I see me there in that picture. But how did he know it was... Or how would he know? Does he appreciate that it was a playroom? It was a playroom. What's the matter with our mood music here? <laughs> That's the kind we want. A little tired, not making it, wowing. Yes, sir, that's my baby. No, sir, don't mean maybe. I will award the brass figlegi to anyone who, uh... Does anybody know what a placebo is? P-L-A-C-E-B-O? That's a beautiful word. A beautiful word. And it describes almost everything that we are constantly getting all the time from every newspaper in the world and from every newscast and from almost everything else that's banging away at our doors. Do you ever have the feeling that, that, there, that there are a thousand hard knuckles? That there are a thousand hard knuckles banging away on a million doors in your mind? Knuckles that are constantly demanding attention, that want to be heard? I want to be heard. I'm here. I'm here. I've got... I'm, I'm not selling anything. Oh, yeah. I'm not selling anything. I'm not selling anything. And then, then once in a while you can hear the voice... What was his name? Al Pierce. Knocking on the third door from the left. Unsuccessfully, because no one will ever open the door to him. Remember him? <laughs> There's no one home. I hope, 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 hope. There's no one home. I hope, 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 hope. There's no one home. I hope, 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 hope. What a fantastic day. Is there anybody out at, out at Jones Beach? Is Jones Beach open yet? Are the people out there? Oh, of course it's open. This, the, the, the Jones Beach nuts are there long before Christmas. They are there just after New Year's. As a matter of fact, I was flying in a plane one day, speaking of the Jones Beach nuts, flying in a plane, and we came we came over, over the ocean. It was a transatlantic flight. It was a Lufthansa plane, in case you're interested. And came, shh, great big 707 jet, and we were making a big left turn, and, shh, and directly below me, was was uh, Jones Beach. And, boy, it was cold out. And I could see them huddled down there on the sand. The very, very beginnings of the great mass exodus. They were huddled together down there on the sand, trying to cling to each other, <clears throat> as man always does, for warmth. Holding on, holding on. And the old plane went, shh. I looked down there, and there was the excitement, that terrible excitement. That, that uh, just boils up. Just, you can't help it. It just boils up in your mind. That, that awful excitement that, that summer is just about to come, that spring is just over the horizon. You know, speaking of excitement, the other day... Oh, I'll, I'll do the Lufthansa spot now. That's not a commercial. I will say this, that if you are planning to fly the coop, I... I uh, well, I don't know whether you can get a reservation on a Lufthansa plane now or not. I was talking to one of the Lufthansa people a couple of days ago, and the opinion was <clears throat> the opinion was that uh, most of the reservations are taken up for a good part of the summer. I don't know. It just uh, this is the, his feeling. I do not know whether you can make it on a Lufthansa plane. However, I will point out that if you are planning to fly 
to Europe, I would highly recommend that you take a Lufthansa flight. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful way to go. And I know of no airlines that pays more attention to the, to the small things, to the, to the infinitesimal tiny uh, edges that need to be sanded as far as service. It's, it's a real pleasure. Lufthansa. And, and oh, while we're on the subject of, uh, of that excitement, this is not a commercial. I was uh, just finishing a book, which I have been reading. I, uh, I enjoy... It's a funny thing about a really good writer. Uh, a genuinely good writer will have very good days and very bad days. I have never known a mediocre writer who was either good or bad. Mediocre writers are never very bad. They also are never very good. I've, I've known the works of many mediocre... For example, well, there's no sense in bringing people's names into it, but there are some writers who write along at a steady level, who never rise to any great heights, who never dip to any great lows. They just go, kind of go along. As far as I'm concerned, writing is a man talking to me. A man talking to me. And, and I think that you should... You should look at, at writing that way because, after all, print is only a sort of symbol for speech. It's all it is. It's no more than that. that. That some guy is sitting across a table from you and he's talking. He's talking. Now, there are some people who have fantastic moments of brilliance in speech. Uh, the real talkers. And he will go along and suddenly his speech catches fire. Something, something happens inside of him. And he goes. He really goes. And he, he, he flies. And the next thing you know, this guy is skimming among the clouds. And he's reaching higher and higher and higher. And he's really saying it. And this sort of man can never maintain that kind of pace. Of course, no one could. And then gradually he begins to come down from that high level. And he skims low over the earth again. But almost always, a talker of this kind is better than the steady, mediocre, drum-fire, uh, platitudinous, blah, 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 blah talker that goes on and on and on and on and is extremely polite. I always, I always think of the mediocre writer as an extremely polite talker who keeps looking in your eyes to see whether he's boring you. Who keeps, who keeps looking at your fingers to see that you're not drumming them on the table. And who keeps constantly saying things which he thinks will please you so that he does not bore you. And so, by that very process, he bores me infinitely. Because he has said nothing that catches himself, that burns him up, you see. And so there are writers who, who burn up with their very excitement. And, of course, uh, depending on their technique, they can catch you into it and burn you right up, too, for that moment. I will, I will take 500 dull pages, not dull, of course, because the, that kind of writer can never be really dull, but I will take 500 pages of, of a man's, let's say, second work if he has three pages of really brilliant insight. In all of literature, I have not come across maybe more than perhaps a hundred pages of work that really burns, that really hisses and steams and sears across that, that long-forgotten plane of memory, really comes, uh, really comes as a long forked tongue of steel at you. 
maybe a hundred pages, but of course you've got to go through a lot of stuff to get to this. And incidentally, all the stuff that you go through gives that one brilliant fork of tongue, that one brilliant flame, it gives it, it gives it more meaning. It gives it a frame in a sense. Well, the other day, I'm, uh, I'm going along through a book that I was reading, and it had moments of greatness, you know, what we call greatness today anyway. It had moments of, of real insight and beauty, and then it would go along for a while. And, and I had the feeling that the guy was sitting across from me, and he was trying to say something. He, just, he was saying it. He's saying it to me. You know? And then, then he, would, he would sit for a while and drink his coffee while he's talking. He would lose the, the thread of what he had to say. And then he, he would think a little bit more, and he would muse a little bit, and then he would say something else. And then he would, he would scratch himself. And then once in a while, that moment would come. That moment would come when, when it would just, just come lashing out. And in this case, it was the description of a city, a beautiful description of a city. And it, it jumped out of the page at me and hit me right between the eyes because I know the city so well. And when you're describing a city, you're describing man, you know, because no city exists without him. And no man, in a way, exists without a city. There's always a city, even to the farm. Even to the man way up somewhere in the long, the long range that stretches to the sky in Alaska, there is a city somewhere. There is a city. We are a gregarious herd animal. We chew our cuds and we move slowly up and down the slopes. Sometimes we stray from the herd, but we're always with the herd. There's no escaping the herd. And listen to this beautiful description of a city. An October sort of city. Even in spring with somebody's washing always whipping in smoky October colors off the third floor rear by the same wind that drives the yellowing comic strips down all the gutters that lead away from home. A hoarse-voiced, extra-hawking newsy of a city by its padlocked pool rooms and its nightshade neon, by its car barn Christ-punching transfers all night long, by its nuns studying gin fizz ads in the Englewood local You Shall Know Chicago. By nights when the yellow salamanders of the L bend all one way and the cold rain runs with the red-lit rain. By the way, the city's million wires are burdened only by the lightest snow and the old year yet lighter upon them when chairs are stacked and glasses are turned. Isn't that a beautiful picture of a city? <clears throat> And he's, he's really laying it down, you see. He sees this city. He's, he's not only seeing it, he's, he's weeping with it. I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm, I'm reading this in the H&H. And it was kind of late in the H&H. And you know, when you sit in these places late, the air conditioning, which was set up for an earlier time of the day when the sun was, was rolling and curling along 57th Street and it was hot, you could smell the asphalt. And, and all the people that come in from all the offices and were absorbing all the cold air and radiating heat. The air conditioning hardly made itself felt. And now it was about 10 o'clock and the air conditioning had taken over. It was still set for that peak day. And it was cold in there. And I'm sitting, I'm sitting next to my table and I'm drinking my coffee and eating my whole wheat crawler. I'm hooked on whole wheat crawlers. I'm sitting there, I'm on my whole wheat crawler jack, and I'm drinking my coffee, and I'm just sort of leafing through this thing. And it was cold. 
and and the old the old regulars, you know, the Horn and Hard Art is genuinely to many people the club, the club in New York, and and most of these people are the people who sit in hotel lobbies, third-rate hotel lobbies, and they sit next to plastic plastic fern plants, dusty plastic fern plants, and the only music they ever hear really is the sound of loudspeakers playing behind second-rate restaurant hot tables, just playing all the time. These people sit. And these, th- th- this, this is the crowd that's in H&H at 10 o'clock at night, and it's cold, and they're all sitting there looking at yesterday's mirror. And they all seem to be somehow ex-opera singers. In some of them. In other places, they're, they're kind of ex-boxers and ex, ex-agents and ex-people. Just ex-people. They're not really people anymore. They're, they're kind of not part of it any longer. And so they, they huddle together over their coffee. It's 10, 11 o'clock. It's too early to go home, whatever they call home, what unspeakable little holes. It's too early to go back there. And so they sit and talk. And there I was. I'm drinking my coffee. And looking down at that whole wheat crawler, and occasionally looking at the page, and listen to it come off. An October sort of city, even in spring, with somebody's washing always whipping in smoky October colors off the third floor rear by the same wind that drives the yellowing comic strips down all the gutters that lead away from home. A hoarse-voiced, extra-hawking newsy of a city. By its padlocked pool rooms and its nightshade neon, by its car barn Christ punching transfers all night long, by its nuns studying gin fizz ads in the Englewood local You Shall Know Chicago. By nights when the yellow salamanders of the L bend all one way and the cold rain runs with the red-lit rain. By the way the city's million wires are burdened only by the lightest snow and the old year yet lighter upon them when chairs are stacked and glasses are turned and arc lamps all are dimmed. By days when the wind bangs alley gates ajar and the sun goes by on on the wind. By nights when the moon is an only child above the measured thunder of the cars, you may know Chicago's heart at last. You'll know it's the place built out of man's ceaseless failure to overcome himself. Out of man's endless war against himself, we build our successes as well as our failures making it the city of all cities most like man himself, loneliest creation of all this very old poor earth. That says it. I'm sitting there drinking my lukewarm coffee. I can hear that old L rattling by. And I suddenly see this picture that I, I used to see when I lived in Chicago. There was a brief period in in my world when I used to commute from the from the loop. Do you know about the loop? What is it, the loop in Chicago? The loop is where the L makes a loop. It's kind of the, the midtown, kind of the Times Square of Chicago, but not really. It's truly a loop. And the L makes a great big loop, a, a big loop. If you look down on the on the map of the L, the L is the elevated. Before she heads on up north, makes a great big loop, and all the buildings and all the people and all the hopes and all the dreams and all the defeats and all the desires of everyone encompassed in that loop, those are the people who live in the loop. Those are the loop worlds. 
And this great big old train made a loop. And every night I would ride on this train. And she would head on up north. And, and it was north that I was going. And every night I would catch the same, the same Howard Street local that would head on up north, make that great big loop and go rattling on. And it was always winter in this picture, in this thing that I see, because it seemed to be always winter when I was doing this. I must have done it in the spring, but I don't remember doing it in the spring. I don't remember doing it in, in the fall. I only remember winter. Or maybe it's just, as he says, an October sort of city, even in spring. You, you just feel as though it's always winter, or, or just about winter. And I can remember every night, this old Ellen. Hey, have you noticed that when you get into a bus, you generally go to the right or the left, but you always go to the same side of the bus? What side of the bus do you go to? For some reason or other, when I get into a bus, I go left. I suspect most people do that. I kind of think that, that the world is people these days mostly, especially here in midtown New York, with counterclockwise people. Even though the, the world is generally set up for the clockwise operator, I suspect that in little ways most of us find ourselves eddying and drifting against the current. And so every day I would get in and I would veer left in the L. And because I, I, I knew exactly how to play the L, you know, people know where to play for the bus you know exactly where the bus is going to stop if you ride it long enough. And if you ride a certain subway, you know just exactly where to stand so the car stops so that you're going to be closest to the door and not that little fat lady standing over there by the pineapple frozen machine with the, with the shopping bags. She caroms off the weight machine. She comes reading past and bumps into the waste basket. And already you're five lengths ahead of her because you're playing your role as a as a city dweller much better than she is you're you're treading upon those jungle paths with much more surety than she is a real city denizen knows how to live in the city i mean it's just as difficult as as learning how to be a cougar or learning how to be a panther in the jungle there are just as many things that you learn and so i can remember always veering left in the l and getting just about the same seat or standing near the same seat. And every night, as the L would, would just clear the loop, we were going through a, an area where the L runs directly back of all sorts of homes, not really homes, they're tenements, I suppose. And you run along past the back end of many, many buildings with gray wooden porches. Uh, Chicago has buildings completely different from New York buildings. Are you aware that the that the uh, architecture is very different in Chicago? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, much different. The, the Chicago, it's kind of like the Prairie Avenue School of Architecture, and it, it clings much more to a Victorian feel than the architecture of New York. It's a very different city. The, the buildings are different. Even the old buildings are different. They're much more Rococo. There is much more of the flowing big green hanging furbelows and things and, and cupolas and great big bay windows. Chicago is a city of round towers, by the way. Oh, yes. You walk in the near north side and you see many, many buildings with round towers and great green bay windows hanging out. This is not a New York kind of architecture. And as, as I rode in the L, I would see the backs of these flat buildings, the flat backs with the, with the great gray wooden porches hanging down sort of stuck on the back like grills. And every night, I would look through the same window, the same third-story window that was directly level with the L, every night. 
and there was always a single solitary man standing bending over a sink. And this man was a big wide man, and he was always wearing nothing but a but a t-shirt, or a, actually it was a BVD shirt, you know, the kind with the with the with the arm straps, the so- shoulder straps, and it was hanging limply from his body. And he had black trousers and suspenders hanging down over his rump. And this man was always bending over his sink in a yellow kitchen that had a single great big fat old yellow light bulb hanging down and cracked walls and calendars. And he was always bending over this sink washing his hands at exactly 517 every every long October, midnight, summer, winter, Chicago world of it all. And he's bending over there, and I and I, I, I always saw just this side of him in the window in a big can that was covered with green crepe paper. There was a, a geranium growing. A geranium. This is a Chicago flower. And every night I would look through there, and I would see this man bending over his, bending over his sink, washing his hands at 517, those long, long Chicago October twilights. Always winter, always bending over, always wearing that dark black serge suit, that that limp-looking BVD sort of underwear. He never had a shirt. He never had anything to read. He never was doing anything other than just washing his hands with a yellow cake of Fells naphtha soap that probably was impregnated with coffee grounds and potato peelings. Just bent over there, washing, washing. As far as I know, he's still doing that. I like to think he's still there. Still there, leaning over there, washing his hands. Speaking of the... Speak... We'll be back in 15 minutes. This is WOR Radio, your station for news. Here's one minute of quiet jazz with the compliments of Schaefer Beer. What do you hear in the best of circles? Schaefer all around... People all have found the pleasure doesn't fade After one or two You get that first beer pleasure Each beer through That's why you hear in the best of circles Schaefer all around Even after your thirst is gone, the pleasure of Schaefer keeps coming on. Get all the pleasure of the first beer, every beer through, with Schaefer, all around. This is WOR, AM and FM, New York, owned and operated by RKO General. At the WOR time tone, the time will be exactly 1 p.m. James McCarthy reporting... Or up-to-the-minute reports 